Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the Shop Talk Trade Show in Las Vegas on Tuesday, March 21st. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and hey, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, we have an awesome treat today. Straight from the keynote stage here at Shop Talk, we have Kevin Manzel. He is the CEO of Kohl's. Kohl's is one of the top retailers in the U.S. and needs no further induction. Welcome to the show, Kevin. We're excited Thanks. to have you. Looking forward to it. Cool. Well, I think most people are familiar with Kohl's. Um, I'd love some you know, high-level bullets of how many stores, geography, anything else that's kind of the, you know, the orient everyone kind of where Kohl's is right now. Sure. Relatively large company. Um, we have a big physical footprint, uh, about 1,150 stores across the country, um, pretty well dispersed in all parts of the country. Um, we have a pretty robust online business as well. So about 85% of our business overall is transacted in our stores. About 15% fundamentally is online um, just due to the way customers shop. A larger percentage of our transactions actually happen in stores, so closer to 90% or so. Um about $19 billion in scale and size. Um, we merchandise uh, a relatively broad assortment of both national brands, which is about half our business, and our own proprietary brands, which is about half our business, across uh, really kind of six big businesses, primarily apparel. So we have men's, women's, and children's apparel, uh, footwear, home, and accessories. And uh, so I think people a lot often think about us as a department store, um, but, uh, the fact is that 85, 92% of our total stores actually are not in malls. So we're kind of not like a department store, but I think for ease, because of our merchandise mix, that's how they characterize us. Yeah. You guys are based out of Milwaukee, out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin always have been. It's an interesting story. I'll give you just a cliff notes on it, but, uh, the business evolved out of a family grocery chain, um, that was founded by a guy named Max Cole. Um, and somewhere along the line in the early 60s, um, he made the decision to kind of branch into general merchandise sales and successfully sort of added on very small general merchandise sales um, pieces to his food business. He was a really dominant grocery store in Wisconsin in the Midwest. Um, and it stayed that way for a long period of time. And then uh, in the mid-80s, a large retail company got interested um, over oh, from overseas, got interested in U.S. retail and, and took a run at Kohl's and, um, you know, put together a blueprint to expand the company. And uh, it was successful for a while, um, but they weren't that interested in U.S. retail. It's a tough business. So it was an acquisition. They acquired Kohl's and Grimmett? It, it, uh, it was a company, British American Tobacco, and they established a U.S. division, which included some insurance, some financial services, and retail. And, uh, you know, I think fundamentally they learned quickly the U.S. retail landscape is very competitive. It's, it's very tough. It's very uh, cutthroat and uh, didn't stick with it for a long time. So the company went private in 1986, um, relatively still small, a little under $300 million. Went public in 1992 at about a billion dollars. 
and we've grown since that time to the $19 billion figure. Cool. So I was, I was looking on uh, LinkedIn and you have an interesting career, you know, kind of in retail, we have a lot of folks that have started, you know, out on the front lines and worked their way up. But I'd love to hear kind of your, your Cole story of how you, you got into the, uh, and even before then, how you got into retail and how you progressed your career. Mine's probably a little bit uh, like that. You know, I think that it is often common to find people who, you know, ended up in retail leadership roles after working at the entry level first and then yeah. work their way up. So I, I do have a little bit of that. Um, you know, I would say it was probably unusual a little bit of my career as I've spent 35 years with the same company. Mm-hmm. Typically in our industry, um, you know, executives move a fair amount, you know, if for no other reason than there's been so much consolidation um, and actually the elimination of a lot of brands across the U.S., uh, that by default people end up having to move. So I've been really fortunate from that perspective. I actually went to school in St. Louis, um, and my family's from St. Louis. Graduated there with a finance degree, thinking I'd go into accounting, and somehow ended up in retail mm-hmm. um, because I had been working part time at the company that I went to work for. And the, the person who was most aghast at that was my mother, who had convinced herself I was going to be a CPA and <laughs> I graduated with my degree and she realized I was going to work in the same exact store I was working in part-time. Um, but I, I love retail. I love the day-to-day part of it, the personal interaction, kind of what we're doing right now, which is to be able to talk to people, engage with people on a regular basis. Um, moved to Milwaukee uh, in 1982. Um, Kohl's had 10 stores when I got there. We did about $80 million. So um, I, as I said, I'm fortunate and then I haven't ever had a move. It's been such a great, successful concept and such a great group of people to work with. And we've had great leaders over the course of time that you can kind of emulate their skill sets and learn from. Um, and I've been able to take some of the learnings from that. And then you try to add a little bit of your own. Uh, very cool. You know, one of the things we talk about on the show, uh, we talk to a lot of analysts and reporters and there's this like, a uh, fairly negative drumbeat about retail and brick and mortar retail in particular. And I'm, I'm obviously like you have to get queried about it a lot more than we do. Like what is your general sentiment about the industry right now? I mean, is it, are we in a lull? Like, are there things you're optimistic about? What's what, how do you define the state of retail at the moment? Yeah. I mean, this might sound strange to you, but I'm actually really optimistic. You know, retail, when you've been doing something for a long enough, period of time, you do have some pretty good context. And so, you know, as I look back at my, you know, 40 years now in retail, the amount of change that has happened has been massive and it's been consistent. Change is just a fact of life in our business, right? It's a consumer business. And so you're constantly, you know, really trying to react to consumer preferences and decisions they make. And so I don't actually find what's happening in retail right now that necessarily scary um, you know, I will say that like everything else in life, things are moving faster. Um, there's more noise. Um, so it's hard to sort of separate what is sort of a short term, you know, oh my gosh, that's really bad. Maybe people are buying less clothing or they don't want to pay as much from things that are longer term. And really you do have to strategize against in order to win from a competitive perspective. But I, I don't see some big seismic change happening. It's, but I, but I will tell you the pace of change is different. The pace of change is faster than it used to be. But I think that's true for pretty much everything. Yep, and I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think 
we're already seeing the industry evolve. And I'm, I'm imagining when you started and Coles is a 10 store regional player. And I, you know, it had to be really scary looking up the hill at the, the Sears of the world that were like really fast runners back then and huge. And like, think of all the change we've seen in that time. Now you are at the top of that hill um, with a big store count and, and uh, a lot of great customer affinity. Um, but it, Part of that evolution is that customers' preferences about what they want out of the store and the experience they expect is different. And uh, Scott, in particular, loves to beat up the mall model. And so he, his favorite word is mall again. Um, and we, we do have you know a, a fair amount of, of uh, anecdotal evidence at the moment that the mall retailers are not super healthy. Um, you're in a unique position because, as you mentioned earlier, you're really not dependent on mall traffic. Um, to earn your customers. So I'm curious, do you have a POV on the mall? Is the mall a format that we're going to move away from? Or do you see malls as an important part of the future of retail? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think there's any question the evidence says that, uh, you know, mall traffic is not in a temporary decline. It's been an ongoing decline over the last, you know, honestly, for for sure, 15 years. You probably make the case even longer than that. Um, I think it's like a lot of other concepts, right? They, They got... There, there were too many of them. They ended up being built in places that couldn't support them in many cases. Um, you know, people's preferences changed. Um, concepts developed off the mall that began to eat a lot at mall traffic. Kohl's was a great example of that, right? I mean, our, you know, really large rise in, in sales happened in the 90s and the 2000s. We opened the most of our stores between 2000 and 2008. And none of them essentially were in the mall. And so, you know, the idea of, you know, recognizing that a driver of customer preference is convenience and ease early on helped people like Kohl's and others. You know, there were other mall or other non-mall retailers that followed a similar formula that maybe wasn't in our category. People like Best Buy in the electronics category or, um, you know, supply stores like Staples and were really successful doing so. So people just, you know, consumer preferences change and, and, you know, if they can find a faster, less expensive way to acquire the same thing, well, why won't they go there? And of course, as you guys know, um, you know, more of that is happening now. Because now people are deciding that, hey, maybe shopping more online is even more convenient. Um, now, not necessarily, I don't know that it can be proven that it's less expensive, <laughs> but it's more convenient. Um, and convenience is important. I mean, I feel time pressed all, uh, always, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you guys do too. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're sort of navigating that, but we've kind of navigated all along that way. You know, the biggest thing I would say that, I've learned and that we're focused on as an organization. The number one value we have at Kohl's by far is put the customer first. And we, we, we really believe that, you know, look, we have to run a strong uh, enough business to have a healthy balance sheet and a good capital structure so that we can do this. But if we can run a healthy enough business to have a good capital structure and strong balance sheet, then we can always look to the long term and, and sort of always put the customer first we do that, you know, we might not win next quarter. We might not actually win next year, but over time we'll definitely win. Um, and, and that, you know, there's a lot of implications in that, which we, you know, may or may not have time to get into, um, today, but 
It's an important element. We're, we've had a long range view on everything. Um, and you know, that Im- impacts every decision we make. And I mean, I have to imagine that it's somewhat of a competitive advantage at the moment that a lot of, uh, your competitors for wallet share in the apparel category do have a much bigger investment in mall footprints. Um, and so I, I, I would certainly imagine that that that's playing to your benefit at the moment. I think so. I mean, I think the, the, you know, and you, it, it's sort of which comes first here, but I think the fact that some of our biggest competitors are really mall based, um, creates its own pressure on their decision-making when it comes to, okay, can we make the necessary capital investment in the physical facility? Can we make it in the technology space? Can we be as nimble? Can we merge these two things? Um, and it's why, you know, even though we put the customer first in everything we do, you can only do it if you're healthy. Uh, and so, you, you know, if you're not healthy, then you have to start making decisions that are probably not in your long-term interest, but they're necessary because you have to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other ways you think of the malls as get, or the, your store footprint rather as giving you a sort of competitive advantage in today's market? We do. I mean, you know, let's be honest, right? The, uh, there are two, uh, you know, pressures we face in our business. You know, for, let's forget overall whether people want to buy more clothing or less clothing. Let's just say it's the same amount. Um, you know, Amazon I've and, heard of them. <laughs> and deep value retailers like TJ Maxx or Ross are uh, share gainers right now. Mm-hmm. Just like we were a share gainer, you know, in the 2000s, they are a share gainer right now. And you know, we've, as we've looked at that, we don't really see that slowing down in the near term. And by near term to us, that's like five, the next five years. So we see Amazon as a, as a big share uh, threat. We see off price stores as a big share threat. So what do we do about that? I think where we've landed is that our best chance to compete effectively and successfully against them and also take share from some of the retailers who are closing stores and shrinking is to give the best omni-channel experience we can give. So part of that is definitely influenced by the fact that, hey, the hand we're dealt is we have 1,150 stores. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, an asset for sure. And so let's work with that asset and make the necessary investments to take advantage of customers who want to shop online. We give them the convenience of actually having a physical experience too. And make sure that we connect those two things in a seamless way so that it's engaging and they don't, they don't have to make a choice. Do I go to the mall or do I shop online? No, I can do both actually at Kohl's and do it pretty effectively. So that, that's, that's kind of our, our sort of our strategy and our thesis as it relates to our store portfolios connect to this omni-channel view of where our success lies. You know, one of the, we get this question a lot is, um, how to make yourself immune from Amazon. Um, and you know, our recommendation always is do more of your own brands. So if you're, if you're a multi-brand retailer and you don't have any of your own brands, you're, you're very exposed, right? Cause you don't have any differentiation. And at the top of the show, you mentioned about 50% of your sales are from, um, your own brands. Um, was that a concerted effort over the last 10 years or like, tell us, tell us how you got to, that's an enviable position for a lot of folks. Tell us how you got there. I mean, we, we got there in an effort to get balance in our business. Um, you know, there are clearly big advantages to having 
strong national brand presence and be a credible source for consumers for national brands. You know, it drives traffic. People know the quality. They know the brand. They know what it stands for. But they're typically more competitive and therefore margins are less. And so, you know, we knew we needed to have a good balance between that and a portfolio of proprietary brands that could provide the same kind of quality level, but a much lower price. And that would give us the best chance to kind of, you know, reach the most number of people because this is what that's really all about. Um, so it's evolved over time. I mean, uh, 15 years ago, our share of proprietary brands was only 25%. It's risen to 50%. It's kind of held there. It's not so much that we've kind of said, hey, that's where it ought to be. We've more said it looks like that's where customers like it to be. Um, so I do think it's an, it, it's an advantage. I mean, national brands are really important um, because consumers want them. Um, and so we know we have to fight the battle on that. And having a balance then with our proprietary brands gives us, you know, an opportunity in the case of both of those competitive sets, virtual retailers driven by Amazon and off price stores that they don't have, they don't have that capacity and capability. Um, and so I, I, I feel like we're in a good place on that and we just have to execute well. And then uh, what do you think about, so Amazon's putting a lot into their private label and they're starting to, you know, in the early days it was electronic accessories and then there was some home furnishing kind of stuff. And now they're, they're into apparel. Um, how do you, how do you think about that? You keep, just keep an eye on it. It's, it's kind of similar strategy to what you guys have seen. Yeah. I mean, as I said, I think we just, we, we sort of have accepted and acknowledged that their share is going to grow yeah. and they're going to continue to move down the path that retailers before them have moved down. Right. I mean, 25 years ago, we didn't have any proprietary brands. Now it's half of our business. I, you, you know, that's just a natural extension of the business. Um, you know, we, what, what we're probably more focused on our proprietary brand portfolio and, and, you know, I'm hope, I'm hopeful that this will drive uh, a healthy business is to implement more speed in our supply chain. So, you know, fundamentally, you know, for years, there was sort of a vision in retailing, particularly apparel retailing of of what they like to call the merchant princes, the, mm -hmm. the people who, you know, were able to identify trends and identify textures and colors and fabrics that were going to be more popular in the future and make big bets on those. That's not how the world works today, right? The social media drives much of that. Um, and, you know, expressions get translated from one continent to another mm -hmm. instantaneously. Um, it doesn't take years. It doesn't even take quarters or months. It happens immediately. And so, you know, what that sort of says to you is you need to have a more fluid supply chain. And, you know, outside of Amazon and off price, I'd say, you know, the other big success story in retail in the last 10 years um, worldwide has been fast fashion. And, you know, some of it's deeper value like H&M. Some of it's, um, you know, incredibly supply chain focused like Zara. Um, but, you know, the one thing they have in common is really fast supply chains. And so from, hey, this looks like it's selling well to we should have a lot more of that is a really short period of time. Ours is not short enough right now. And so that's the number one priority we have. But it's, again, it's, it's kind of all driven by that. The number one value we have in a company is put customers first 
So if the number of ads put customers first, doesn't it make sense that we should have more relevant merchandise for them more quickly um, and not dictate what they want, but in fact respond to what they buy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so at the top of the show, you mentioned about 15% of your sales are, are e-commerce. What do you guys put in that bucket? Is that straight from Kohl's.com or do you also include ship from store, buy online, pick up in store? I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question to answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, by definition, right, an omni-channel business is seamless. Um, so the, the, the best way that, you know, I feel like I've landed to look at it is where is the demand generated? And, you know, now I can make a strong case for you that a lot of our brick and mortar business, our quote, physical store transaction might be actually generated online by uh, search, by looking at our website, but not buying and looking at brands we carry or prices we have. And then it results maybe much later with a visit to the store. Mm-hmm. Is that an online sale? Is that a physical store sale? At the end of the day, I think where we landed probably two and a half years ago is to say, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, who cares? Um, and, you know, there, there are all kinds of, you know, partners who try to help us sort of connect where did the sale start and where did the sale end to do a better job of investment from a marketing perspective? We spend about $1.2 billion a year on marketing. And so doing that better would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's tricky, a tricky issue to navigate. You know, the, where we've landed is to say if the demand is generated online, regardless of where it's fulfilled, we may ship it from the store or the customer may buy it online and pick up in the store, then we're going to call it internally online demand okay. but we've quit you know financially breaking it out because i think it's it's just so fuzzy okay so you don't financially break it out no okay. i mean we we kind of circle around it and we yeah. say hey online demand online generate demand last year for instance was close to three billion dollars but i i can't tell you that i could guarantee you that's really what it was okay this may be a question then you can't answer so feel free to say no but so e-commerce is growing at 15 percent. do you guys see and you know we're seeing a lot of people with same store sales kind of in the the low single digits some mm-hmm. have kind of gone negative for a bit there um do you guys see your online out indexing your stores and you know and or keeping up with that level of 15 percent out there and I, rising I think tide? online you know for us online demand defined as I just described it, is about 15% of our total sales. It's growing. Roughly, we think it'll probably, there's no, there's nothing we see that wouldn't imply it will continue to grow at a double digit rate. You know, by definition, if we hold our share, that means store sales, physical trips into the store, not generated online are going to be down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and our job really is to moderate that, take advantage of store closures by competition, and of course, do a better job converting people in the store by making the journey a little bit easier for them. And that's where, you know, technology is a big, you know, a really big focus of ours. Um, you know, we've in the last three years, our technology spend is around. $2 billion wow. and that's capital plus expense, but it's a massive that's investment. Online. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you know, much of what we're doing is to really make the experience seamless. I mean, there's structural things, you know, we put in new point of commerce systems and, you know, we've created lots of new 
um, applications for customers. But fundamentally, most of the investment, and of course, we do infra- a lot of infrastructure work to make sure we're up to date. But fundamentally, most of our investment is how do we make the journey easier so it's not more complicated, it's less complicated. Whenever I go to Kohl's, the, um, I always end up being behind someone that's like doing these complex coal cash. So you guys have this loyalty program and I see people in the stores like really trying to figure that out. And they're always trying to figure out, you know, I don't know what they're trying to, there's some calculus they're working on. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that it's like something about basket size and they've got like some kind of a one-time use thing. And they're always like, you know, trying to figure that out. But, but there's definitely this like rabid loyal group of, of people in that loyalty program. Um, tell, tell us about that program and, uh, you know, does it work omnichannel? You know, that seems like that would be interesting too. Right. I mean, we do have a massive loyalty program, and it fundamentally started with our Kohl's credit card. So 60% of the sales at Kohl's are tendered by customers on their Kohl's credit card. As a result of that, we have a massive amount of information. We have almost 30 million credit card holders across the country, and we know a lot about them, and we know what they buy, and we know how often they shop because of that. And over time, we recognize that, you know, the success of that sort of implied, hey, how do we expand loyalty to be more than just a tender choice, but instead to be a customer option in in terms of driving transactions? And so we developed something called Kohl's Cash, which is a way for customers to shop at Kohl's and get value back that they can use the next time they shop at Kohl's to drive another visit. We drove beginning about three years ago something called yes to your rewards which is tender agnostic perspective on loyalty and just says hey if you spend money at Kohl's we're going to give you some money back for future use ours is five dollars for every hundred dollars you spend Um, and these things together are sort of all part of our loyalty platform and Mm -hmm. you know as you can imagine the further along the platform customers go you know, if you're a casual customer, you might only earn Kohl's cash and maybe use it the next time you come. If you're a little more engaged to say, well, I should join that Yes to Your Reward program. I'm going to get more bucks back. Oh, I could put the two of those things together maybe the next time I come. If you're a little more engaged to say, hey, you know, I don't really maybe need another credit card, but that's an amazing value I could get. Maybe I'll layer that on. And there's a layer within that for customers who spend more they actually earn more as well. They get bigger discounts. So it's an exciting proposition. It's a loyalty proposition, though, that can get complex. I think your experience you described is not unusual. I've been in that line, yeah. and I've been behind the customer who's trying to figure out, should I use my Kohl's cash this trip or save it for next time? Hey, do I get this 20% off on that Nike product or only on the Sonoma The story associates always very helpful. The story associates they are. tends to know they answer. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I can't even imagine how you guys train them on that because that, that's like a, it's pretty complicated. Yeah. No, I, so I think your experience is not unusual. I will tell you that while it's got amazing benefits in that it's sort of exciting, there's a whole gameship to it. It also creates friction with, uh, I would say more casual customers who, who simply like the simple proposition that maybe they get it. Amazon or TJ Maxx is like, okay, whatever the price is, and it's like, that's what I'm going to pay. And so to try to navigate that effectively and not lose the benefits of the loyalty platform, we've we've tried to take all the friction out with digital tools. Uh, And so we launched two years ago a a Kohl's app, 
which has been, you know, successful. We've got something like 18 million downloads. You guys lifetime. are always in the top five on Comscore retail apps, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. And um, a, lot, a lot of people struggle. You know, we see all these retailers put all this money into an app and it's just a regurgitation of the store. It doesn't really add value. And it's, it's nice to have a loyalty program as an anchor to, to bring people in. And, it is. And, and what's happened to be honest is the, you know, there's a whole bunch of robust value inside the app, but to your point, sometimes what can happen is you put so much effort into creating the app, you forget, hey, the only thing that actually matters is do people use the app? Yeah. So getting the, you know, getting the download, that means nothing. It's a bad metric. Right. <laughs> yeah. So our metric is usage. Um, and we discovered really early on, and maybe this would, you two probably would say, well, that's intuitive. Why do you have to look at the numbers to figure that out? But there were a couple of elements inside the app, one of which was what's called the Kohl's wallet, the digital wallet inside the app. And the digital wallet inside the app is basically everything in your life at Kohl's. So all of your Kohl's cash digitally can be in there. Your Kohl's charge discounts, your general public offers, your yes to your rewards. And you don't have to think anymore. When you get to the cash register and you're checking out, you know, all you have to do is use the digital wallet aspect of your app and you get all of that figured for you. And so that is driving usage and usage is way, way up. I think year over year, we're almost doubled on usage and, and the digital wallet's a big part of that. Now there's, there's a couple other things that we're really proud of. Um, Kohl's pay is an, is an aspect inside the app. Um, and it's, it's essentially Apple pay with your Kohl's charge. Um, and again, that, the the, you know, the focus. Is that a touchless or is it a QR? Is it a scan? It's a QR. QR scan. Um, and, you know, it's funda- fundamentally, it's, uh, you know, really about usage again. So we're just trying to get people to get used to using it so they get comfortable using it. And adoption's good. It's a very small percentage of the total transaction. Did you have to add Wi-Fi to the stores? We uh, did. The stores are so big. When I get in the middle, I lose my signal. Yeah. We, we actually had a you know, what we considered to be a really robust Wi-Fi network in all of our stores for quite a while. And what happened is we've put so much emphasis on technology that about two and a half or three years ago, we realized, oh my God, we're going to have to massively expand the capacity, the pipe going in and the touch points inside the store. And so, you know, it sounds odd, but a huge, a huge dollar amount of capital, I think something in the range of 25 to $50 million in the last year has been invested just to upgrade Wi-Fi. And the reason is customers are using the tools, but if they're going to use the tools, then they need to be able to use them effectively. And the other thing that drove it a lot is we've probably put as much emphasis on tools for our associates as we have for our customers. And they're using it. So they primarily, uh, the, the major tool that associates use is on a Bluebird device. So it's not their, their own mobile phone or a mobile phone we've provided. It's a Bluebird device. But a lot of it is around fulfillment, as you can imagine. Um, but, you know, find product in the store, look up product online. Um, but all of that stresses Wi-Fi. Um, you, we've just talked a lot about some of the, the sort of cool omni-channel features, how you're sort of bringing digital into the store. Um, I really think of you as a pioneer in some of those in-store digital experiences to sort of meet the, that digital customer's expectations 
when they're shopping the physical store. Are there new initiatives in that space that you're thinking of? Are there things you're excited about in terms of the future of increasing the enhancing the in-store experience? Yeah, I mean there are there you know and they're sort of circling around the same uh, things. Um, you know. Uh, a, a more Kohl's focused associate focus, for instance, is the utilization of artificial intelligence and machine learning to help more effectively uh, fulfill our omnichannel ardor system. And so, you know, we, we, we have, you know, I think what we thought were pretty relatively rigorous uh, decision making tools that, you know, allowed us to choose where do we fulfill this order from? How do we fulfill this order? Is it one store, multiple stores, the EFCs? Um, but, you know, the bigger that business gets, the more complicated that gets, and the more you have at risk. And I know you know this, but our online business on a separate operating basis, even though we don't report it that way, would not be anywhere near as profitable as our brick-and-mortar business. And so, you know, making that process easier and more seamless and frankly lower cost per order is a pretty critical factor. So that's a good example of a place where we're putting a lot of emphasis. Um, you know, going to the next level on, on Apple Pay, we have Apple Pay like a lot of other retail stores do, but going to the next level of Apple Pay and applying some of these tools that customers use to save money into Apple Pay is kind of like another way to go about it. So no, we, you know, on a positive side, uh, the, the structure of the company is financially strong enough. We've been aggressive in investing. I think we've done a fair job making investments. We definitely make some that we scratch our heads and say, boy, that did not pay off. Um, it was sort of the shiny object thing. But I think we're more and more uh, better at saying, okay, what's the business reason? So, we didn't mention this, and I know you probably don't have time to get into all this gory detail, but we made a big decision about five years ago to open up a California technology office. And the reason we did that is we wanted to build our own capability and capacity and a team there. Not that we could not go outside to get that, because I, I know we can, but the advantage of having our own team is that they understand our business. And so they can connect our business partners to solutions that they create. And it's not somebody on the outside kind of looking at it and figuring out, well, I think this is probably the right way to deal with that. No, we know this is the right way to deal with that. As someone that makes a living being that outsider, I totally disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Trust me, we spent plenty of money on the outsiders too. (laughs) Technology investment, as the CFO will say, is the gift that keeps on giving. Cool. Well, I know we're up against time. So last question, um, as I was researching and going through kind of your fact books you guys have, I was, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised you guys do a ton of stuff for the community. Um, and it seems to be one of your core values, you know, putting, putting the customer first and you guys yeah. do a lot around the community, maybe give listeners some highlights on, on that. We, we, we try to do our fair share. Um, and I, I think we accomplished that. Um, we have a, a, you know, a platform, uh, for giving that's pretty broad and I won't get into all of it because you don't have time for it. I'd say the one that's probably the most robust aspect that people see who shop our stores is our volunteer program. So we, we really encourage our store associates to be involved in the community and and we pay for that. And at times we pay more than others. And we try to, we try to treat it almost like our business. So, 
you know, if you volunteer in a, a small group for a qualified charitable uh, organization, uh, will, you know, add 500 hours to that organization's, um, you know, coffers on your behalf. And then sometimes we'll do things where we'll provide a thousand hours for that to try to accelerate giving. We had some real big success with that last fall. I think we're having it again right now, but we, and we try to relate it to our business to the best we can. So families has been a really big focus of our giving, um, not surprising children's health and education in the past active and wellness right now is a big focus. We have a massive push right now in our stores to encourage our associates to volunteer in their communities in some way that, you know, supports that, that area. So I, I, we feel good about that, but again, you know, being honest, it's pragmatic, you know, giving is good for business and people appreciate that. Yeah. You know, it's admirable to, you know, to, in today's short-term thinking that you guys are thinking long-term about the communities you're in, and, and it's uh, glad to see you guys doing that. Well, Kevin, I'm sorry to say we have used all our allotted time, uh, but I really want to thank you for your time, and thanks for being a great ambassador for our, our industry. Thanks thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about goals. We could do it for a long time, trust me. So all the best. Yep. Uh, enjoy the rest of your Shop Talk show. We really appreciate you being on. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.